Thank you, Maria. Okay, let's turn in our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And again, we want to look at verse... Thank you, Maria. Okay, let's turn in our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And again, we want to look at verse 17, where Paul says, Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the truth of it. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts and minds to the truth of Scripture on this particular subject, Lord. And we pray that you would teach us concerning your will. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue our study on what Paul says about the will of the Lord, because we're spending a couple of weeks on this, because Paul says it's unwise to be ignorant about what the Bible means by this expression, the will of the Lord. God doesn't want us to be unwise. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. He wants us to understand the will of the Lord, this multifaceted will of the Lord. And last week, we considered the subject Uh, more from a generic sense, God's sovereign or God's providential will for the lives of the belief, for the lives of uh, all. And there's no resisting God's sovereign will. That's what he determines that will come to pass. That's God's sovereign will, God's plan for the universe. And we also looked at a more specific will of God, the moral will of God. And that's addressed to us as believers. And that speaks of the desire of God's heart. So not everything in God's sovereign will pleases the Lord. Not everything that he allows to happen is the desire of his heart. It wasn't his desire for Adam and Eve to sin, and therefore to be wars and sin throughout the ages. But the moral will of God is the desire of God's heart. And that's revealed for us in Scripture, and that can be resisted. The sovereign will, nobody can resist God's sovereign will, but the moral will, we do resist, and we do fight against, and we do fail to live up to his moral will. In fact, every command in the Bible addressed to Christians is God's moral will for you, for your life, and for my life. And this will is found in Scripture, the moral will. But today, we want to look at another aspect of God's will. There's a more personal and individual side to the will of God for each one of us. God has a plan for every one of our lives, and that's for those who seek a closer walk with him. And this is what we want to focus on today, the reality of an individual, personal will for each and every one of us as believers. And let's turn to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 9. 
Here in Proverbs 16 and verse 9, Solomon says, A man's heart deviseth his way. But, on the other hand, the Lord directeth his steps. So here we see man's will and God's will merging together. And men, as human beings, we, we devise our own way, we make decisions, we make plans for our career path, we make all these decisions. And simultaneously, God is directing our steps and closing doors and opening doors and providentially keeping us from doing the things that sometimes our will seems right, but it may not be right. So God is sovereign, and man has a will. And while we may not be able, we will not be able to completely uh, fathom how those both work together, we do see them working, weaving perfectly together in Scripture. And let's look at another example in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. This was addressed to the Ephesian believers, and right after having said that they were saved by grace through faith, Paul says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Every one of us is like a sculpture that God made. He's the sculptor, we are the sculpture, and he chips away at things, and he has a, a sculptor has a plan in his mind what he wants that useless hunk of rock to look like. And God has a plan in his mind what he wants our lives to look like. And it says that we were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So God created us for good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So clearly, God has a plan for every one of our lives. He has certain works that he wants us to do, and in fact, those works he already ordained for us before the foundation of the world. And God seeks to lead us down that pathway, that pathway that is specifically designed for each and every one of us personally and individually. God ordained them. And that word ordained means to prepare ahead of time. So the specific steps of a man and the specific pathway or journey where our lives are taking us and all the individualized steps along the way to get us there, God had already ordained or planned or prepared ahead of time. And that's God's individual plan or will for your life, life and for mine. So yes, God does have an individual plan for us. And I say this because a few decades ago now, I guess it's been, I read a, a, a fascinating book on the will of God. It's by a, a Dallas grad who didn't, it was well-written, it was uh, an excellent book, well-organized, and it was very thought-provoking. But I think he missed the target entirely. And it's because he leaned too heavily on man's will. And not enough on the fact that God is still on his throne and God ordains our steps. And his conclusion was, actually it's all through the whole book, that God doesn't have a plan for your life. That God doesn't have a specific will for individuals. He has a moral will. And you can do whatever you want as long as you don't violate the moral will of God. And he pointed out that a missionary would be successful if he practiced the biblical principles in any land where he went. 
And of course, there's an element of truth in that. It's always better to follow the principles than to ignore them. But he was saying that someone like, say, Hudson Taylor would have been just as successful in Mexico as he was in Texas, because it doesn't matter to God the specifics as long as you obey the commands of God in the Bible. So, and he applied that to virtually every decision that we might make in life. And I think he drew his conclusions because of an age-old conflict in the churches. That age-old tension between the sovereignty of God, which is true and real and defined in the scriptures, and the will of man, which also is true and found in the scriptures. But when those two are unbalanced, your conclusions are always going to be unbalanced. And I think that was his problem that in that book, from my, from my perspective at least. Yes, there is a sovereign will of God, but that doesn't exclude a personal, individualized plan for each and every one of us. And we need to be careful about keeping those two in balance, the sovereignty of God and the will of man. There are churches that overemphasize one and de-emphasize another, and as a result, there's a lack of balance. There's an old saying that says, the pendulum swings ridiculous extreme, bypassing truth, which lies somewhere in between. And that's certainly true of our understanding of the sovereignty of God and the will of man. And I think that imbalance skewed his understanding of God's will. But that being aside, so we're going to assume this morning, we can prove it at another point, but we're going to assume that there is an individual will of God for every one of us, and that that God has a plan for our lives. And we're going to, we're studying the book of Ephesians. I don't want to get too far astray, so I do want to kind of finish this today. But it really is germane to Paul's argument in Ephesians chapter 5 that we understand the personal, individualized will of God for each and every one of us. What's been the theme for the last two chapters in chapter 4 and 5? Our walk. It should be a worthy walk, not like the Gentiles, but it should be a walk in light. It should be a walk in love. And so there is a way that God wants us to walk, and that simply means our journey through life and every one of the steps along the way. That's what it means to walk with the Lord. Paul mentions walk five times in these chapters. And he wants us, in verse 17, he wants us to understand the will of the Lord as we seek to walk down the pathway that God has prescribed for us as we walk down our individual journey for life. So let's think about God's individual will for us, that he planned before the foundation of the work that we should walk in. Now, when we looked at the moral will of God last week, we noted that it was objective. It's based upon the objective word of God. And this Bible is an objective test. If I step out of God's moral will, you can take the scriptures and show me where. That's the objective test, what God has said. But if you want to know the specific will of God for an individual, that's not revealed in the Bible. That's very subjective. And you can't tell me what God's will for my life is, and I can't tell you what God's will for your life is either. 
If you step outside the moral will of God, that's another story. But in the personal, individualized steps that each believer takes, that's between you and the Lord. Now, when a brother or sister in the Lord wants to get a new job or buy a new car or they're debating whether they should move to New Mexico or not or go to the mission field or become a pastor or whether Tom should marry Susie Jones or not. Those things aren't spelled out in the Bible. Now, you can seek advice from another brother. In fact, that is part of God's moral will, isn't it? To seek advice. We're not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but we are to walk in the counsel of the godly. But when a brother gives you advice on the specific will of God, it's always good to have ears to hear. And we want to have a heart that's wide open in case the Lord might want to speak to us through that. But just remember that no matter who that person is, if he's giving you advice on the specific will of God, it's not a thus saith the Lord. It's advice. It's the best that a man can do to try to help you, especially a, a man that's a woman that's versed in the scriptures and has experience. They can point out God's moral will. But let's turn back to Acts chapter 21. And here we have an interesting intermingling of the sovereign will of God and the individual will of the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm going to point out a fault in the life of the Apostle Paul. I love him. He's, I love the Apostle Paul. He is my hero of the faith. But like all other heroes of the faith, he was flawed. And let's look in Acts 21, verses 8 and 9. The next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. So this is in the early days of the church, before the Bible was put together, and there were still prophets on earth. And Paul came to stay in the house of an evangelist who had four daughters who were prophets or prophetesses. And what did a prophet or a prophetess do? They conveyed truth from God that had not been revealed in Scripture. And they conveyed it to others before the Scriptures were put together. And then we read in verses 10 and 11. And we tarried there many days, and there came down from Judea a certain prophet, another prophet, named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle, that's a big belt they wore around their robe, and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So here we see another prophet came to the Apostle Paul and he told him that God's specific individual will for him. Don't go to Jerusalem. He said, if you go, you're going to be imprisoned. You're going to be tied hand and feet. You're going to be imprisoned. And so if this was a direct communication of a very specific will. It wasn't for every Christian. This wasn't a message for every believer, don't ever go to Jerusalem. This was specific for Paul and at that time. And then look in verse 12. And when we heard 
these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. So they had a prophet speaking what's going to happen to him, and then an evangelist, four prophetesses, and others that were there, they were all in agreement. All of his brethren were in agreement, don't go. And if that wasn't enough, look in verse 4 of this chapter. It says, in finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul, and notice this, through the Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. So here was a message from God through the prophet, you should not go to Jerusalem. You know, when a father tells his son, you shouldn't do something, and he does it, that's called disobedience. And I think the apostle Paul was disobedient here. He had a prophet that told him not to go. He stayed in Philip's house. He was told again by Agabus, another prophet, don't go. This is what's going to happen to you. But he wouldn't listen. And look in verse 13. Then Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and to break my heart? For I'm ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So here the apostle Paul had good motives. He had good intentions. His heart was in the right place. He was willing to suffer for Christ. He was willing to die. He was determined to go to Jerusalem anyway, in spite of the fact that he was told by prophets through the Spirit not to go. And God sent another prophet and illustrated him with an object lesson not to go. And all the other believers there were in agreement. He should not go. And Paul was determined. He was very... Uh, strong-minded and strong-willed about this. But good intentions are no substitute for the will of the Lord. Paul's mind was made up at this point, and he wasn't going to listen. And then they said something interesting in verse 14. And when he would not be persuaded, these folks knew what the will of the Lord was. The specific will of the Lord was for Paul not to go to Jerusalem at this time. If he did, he was going to be imprisoned. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. There's no talking to him at this point. He's not listening. And they said, the will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord be done. They were convinced that Paul wasn't going to listen to the specific will that God had for him not to go to Jerusalem. And so by saying the will of the Lord, they were basically turning Paul over to the sovereign will of God. You're not going to listen, Paul, but God's will is going to be done. Thy will be done one way or another. They were turning Paul over to the Lord. Paul was resisting the specific will for God. But you know, we read last week that the Lord said in Isaiah 43, I will work and who shall hinder it? Nobody can hinder God's sovereign will, even the apostle Paul. And so the disobedience of a great apostle cannot ultimately hinder God's sovereign plan and God's will. 
And so Paul refused God's will as it was communicated to him, but he couldn't refuse the consequences of it. He was imprisoned. And I know you're going to say, well, yeah, but God used him there. We got the prison epistles as a result of that. Yes. When we make a mistake, his intentions were good. He made a mistake. He shouldn't have, but he did go. And God still used him in spite of that mistake. But that doesn't mean God endorsed what he did. God used him anyway. And God uses us anyway in spite of our failures as well. And we might say, well, yes, but he accomplished so much. He wrote the prison epistles. Well, I wonder how much more he could have accomplished had he obeyed the Spirit and not gone to Jerusalem and had freedom for all of those years. We'll never know the answer to that question. You know, there are some big decisions that we make in life that can affect our spiritual lives as well and the lives of our family and others around us. And we learn from this chapter in Acts that even if we make poor decisions, if our heart's in the right place and we still stumble out of God's specific will, we can learn from those mistakes. God's not done with us because we failed in one area of learning and practicing and proving his will. You know, young people wonder, should I join the army? Should I go to college? What career path should I take? Who should I marry? Uh, what city should I live in? What church should I go to? The Bible doesn't tell us the answer to any of those questions, specifically. But just because the Bible doesn't give us the specifics to every single question that might pop up into our minds, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a specific will for our lives. Imagine how big this Bible would be if God had every Christian Every believer's, every question that popped into their head, he had it specifically spelled out what you should do for the rest of your life. We'd never be able to read the Bible. But God does have a plan for our lives. God's will is his individual will. It's not objective like thus saith the Lord in the Bible, but it's real. And even though it's subjective... It's individual, me and the Lord. I can, God can teach me his will for my life, just like he can teach you your, his will for your life. It's knowable. So before we think about how God directs in the individual aspect of our life, I'd like to put this all in perspective. We said this before, 99.99999, was that Herman Cain that used to say 999? Most of God's will is already recorded for us in the Bible, the moral will of God. That's 99.999% of his will. These other things, when you put it in perspective of eternity, are minuscule. What's, should, I, should I buy the house on Elm Street or on Maple Street? It's kind of minuscule compared to the moral will of God for our lives. So with that in mind, with the right perspective of these individual ways in which God leads us, let's turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. God's main means of leading us is the Bible. But God has another way of leading us in his will, and that is 
the Holy Spirit, which lives in every one of us. So turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Or we could put this sentence in reverse and say, the sons of God are those people who are led by the Spirit of God. That's what a son of God is. A believer is someone whose life is characterized by being led along by the Holy Spirit. It's characteristic of one who is saved. And led here means to lead or to carry. To carry along in a certain direction. And that's what it means literally, but it's used here metaphorically to mean to persuade or to guide And so the Holy Spirit is given to every one of us. He dwells in our hearts. And the Spirit's ministry, one main ministry, is to lead us and direct our steps along the way. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 5. He said, but if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. And that was an interesting contrast there. Either we're led by the Spirit or we're led by the law. The leading is kind of, the word for leading is the same there. It's the same implication. And the way the Holy Spirit leads us is analogous to the way the law led Israel in the Old Testament. And how did the law lead Israel? In every tiny little detail. What to to wear, what not to wear how long their garments were to be, the ribbon on the bottom of the garments, all the priestly garments, what they could eat, what they could not eat, what they could touch, what they could not touch, certain things they weren't to sit on, certain things that were clean and they could sit on them, and when they were to worship, how they were to worship, what sacrifices they were to give, when they were to do it, how often, and all of these things, every little detail of the life, and even how to sow their fields, and whether they could make garments that they couldn't use mixed blends of different kinds of cloth. So many tiny little details of the Jews' lives were incorporated in the law. Those details of the law have ended for us. We're not under the law, but we're under grace. And under grace, we're to be led by the Spirit as he leads us in all of these details analogous to the way the law led Israel in the Old Testament. Turn to Jeremiah chapter chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah 10 and verse 23. Here, Jeremiah says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Now, we can make lots of plans. Solomon said that. And it's wise to make plans. It's wise to plan ahead and and forge out a pathway. But here, Jeremiah acknowledged that it really isn't in our hearts to know how to direct our individual steps along the way. We need God's guidance. In the previous chapter, he said, our hearts are deceptive. Our hearts deceive us. They're corrupt. And we cannot know the way of the Lord in and of ourselves all by ourselves. If all we had was our own will, we would make all kinds of mistakes along the way. 
And so here, Jeremiah wanted the Lord to lead him. And he says in verse 24, O Lord, correct me with judgment. If I step out of line, if I step out of your will, if I'm not doing something specifically that you want me to do, Lord, correct me. Now, correction doesn't necessarily mean that God is angry at us. It's one of the ways that God directs our steps back in line. He corrects us as any father would. He knows our frame. He knows our frailty. He knows how incapable we are of making decisions consistently that are always in line with his specific will for our lives. And so here, Solomon, rather, Jeremiah, demonstrated an attitude of heart. I want to know your will. And if I step out of it, show me, Lord. Correct me. Lead me. Isaiah said, or Isaiah wrote, I am the Lord, the Lord God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee in the way that thou shouldest go. So even in the Old Testament, God knew how to lead the children of Israel. Corporately, he led them by the Shekinah glory through the wilderness. He le- and he led them individually as well. There's a way that they should go. And yet, the book of Proverbs also tells us there is a way that seemeth right unto a man. It seems right. It feels right. But the end thereof are the ways of death. So what seems right to us isn't necessarily right in God's sight. What feels right to us isn't necessarily the will of the Lord for our lives. And what's the key here? To stay close to God. To have our hearts in tune to God, to be sensitive to the Lord, to be listening, to be alert, to be sensitive, to be like Jeremiah. Lord, I know I can't direct my individual steps. Correct me if I make a mistake, if I step out of line. Isaiah also said, speaking about the Lord, where God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God knows the way that we should go. And he's much smarter than we are. His ways are higher than us, infinitely higher. And so we would do well to pay attention to how God leads in our lives. We should keep our hearts as open, wide open to the Lord, sensitive to his leading every day of our lives because the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. God has an individual plan for our individual steps. The revealed will of God in the Bible gives us the general pathway, the straight and narrow But God also orders each and every one of our steps along that way, and he leads us through principles in his word and through the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts, as well as providence. But Paul's exhortation was that we would understand, that we would have the discernment to know. And let's just think now, I'd like to share some thoughts from Scripture, ways that we can know 
God's individual personal will for our lives. How do we get to that place so that we can discern or understand the will of God for our own lives? Well, I guess if you were going to put them in steps, step number one is the cross. The application of the cross. The starting point to know what God's will for our lives is, is to remove the greatest enemy towards knowing God's will for our life. And what's our greatest enemy for knowing God's will? Self-will. We need to get self-will out of the way. Self-will stands in direct opposition to the will of God for our lives. Self-will is the will of our old man, the person that we were before we were saved, when we called all the shots. Self-will is the will of that old fleshly nature, the sin nature. And our sin natures, now that we're saved, is just as anti-God and selfish as ever. And it can be deceiving, because the old fleshly nature can be religious and moral, And in doing so, it becomes self-righteous, which God hates. And self-will is always the opposite of biblical principles. In the Bible, the Lord said, or Paul said, not I, but Christ. Self-will says, not Christ, but I. The Lord Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. Self-will says, not thy will, but mine be done. It's the opposite, because self-will always seeks to please self, to advance self, to exalt self, to prosper self, to promote self, to satisfy and enrich self, and to ultimately to glorify self. And that self-will is the product of a selfish, sinful nature, the enemy of our spiritual life, the enemy of our capacity to discern good from evil. And when self-will reigns in our lives, God's specific will becomes unknowable. If self-will is reigning, then the flesh is reigning. And that means that the Holy Spirit is not reigning in our lives. It says in Galatians 5, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these two are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you will. In other words, it's one or the other. At any given moment in our lives, we're either walking in the flesh or we're walking in the spirit. You can only have one master reigning at any given moment. And either Christ is reigning through the spirit or self is reigning. And when self is reigning through the flesh, we are blinded to the spiritual realm. We're just as blind as the natural man. We're deaf, dumb, and blind to spiritual things. We cannot understand spiritual truth because they're spiritually discerned. You know, John warns us in 1 John chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. In other words, it's possible for a Christian to walk in darkness out of fellowship with God, out of God's will, and say, All is well with me. I'm walking with God. I'm doing his will. And God says, that's a lie. 
We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're walking in the light when we're actually walking in darkness. So there are only two ways a believer can walk, in the light, in fellowship with God, and in the center of his will, or out of fellowship with God, in the darkness, and doing our own will. There's nothing in between. Everything other than God's will is self-will reigning. And God cannot lead a fleshly or a carnal believer because he's walking in the flesh. He's under the control of the flesh. And the flesh is always contrary to the spirit and to the will of God. And as long as the flesh reigns, it reigns over the believer's mind, heart, and will. And it infects his capacity to choose right things. And when that's the case, when self is reigning, that can lead a believer to a very ungodly and dark place in the darkness where we cannot see, where we cannot perceive. We don't see the truth and the light because we're walking in the darkness. And things don't make sense to us spiritual because we're walking in the darkness. And we don't know which way God would have us to go. And so God's only cure for that is the cross. That's how God dealt with self-will of our old man. Our old man was crucified, Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. So our old man, our, own, our old self-life, our old will, God doesn't seek to improve him and make him more moral and more religious and, and more righteous more cultured, more self-disciplined. No, God's method is let him be crucified. As Jeremiah said, the heart of man is desperately wicked, literally incurably sick. So our old man and his ways and his will is incurable. But turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And one interesting fact about Romans 12 is that it comes after Romans 6. That's the end of my math skills. But Romans 12 comes after math, uh, after ch chapter 6. And look what Paul says in verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove. And we saw last week that word prove means to put something to the test. Like engineers that build a bridge, they're pretty sure that bridge is going to hold up. They're risking their reputations on it. But they prove it when they put big trucks go over it and run over it. And that certifies, that gives them the assurance that they're in, that it passed the test. And here we're told that we're to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And I say this chapter comes after chapter 6 because by the time we get to this chapter, Paul expects his readers to know that our old man was crucified the moment we put our faith in Christ. So the man that we present to God is not the person that we used to be. God doesn't want that old man. We keep him on the cross by faith. He's dead. But we are to present ourselves as a new creature in Christ. 
One who the old man is crucified and out of the way, self-will is gone, and the new man is alive unto God, alive in the spiritual realm, desires with all of his heart to do the will of the Lord. And here, that new man that's dedicated unto God and has been placed on that altar, that new man now is to prove, to put to test, Put to the test, is this God's will? And word, the word prove means to practice something, to do it in order to determine that. And so as a believer, we might come across a question that we're not sure which way to go on. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically. And so we, we think the Lord is leading us in this way. So we put it to the test. I think the Lord has called me to be a Sunday school teacher, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to give it a try. And if I give it a try, God is able to, in a few months maybe, confirm it. Yes, I should be a teacher. God is really using me, and I'm loving this. Or, that's not my cup of tea. I wasn't made for that. So we practice the will of the Lord. But that requires that we first be totally yielded and surrendered, are all placed upon the altar which gets the old man out of the way, self-will is out of the way, and now it's just our new creature in Christ who loves God, who, who is delighted in God, and is delighted to do God's will. And now there's no hindrance to knowing God's will. We're unable if the flesh is in control. And so God wants us to reckon these facts to be so, to be true. Know that our old man was crucified. That we don't have to sin. We don't have to live in self-will. And know that we are a new creature in Christ and we're able to walk, to take steps in obedience to the Lord. In a new way of living. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 4 that the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. That's no longer that old man was allured by the things of this world and that affected the choices that he made. But the new creature in Christ has been crucified to the world and the world unto him and now heaven and spiritual things. That's what has captured his mind and heart and that's what influences the decisions that he makes. Death, reckoning ourselves to be dead, frees us from the bondage of blindness to self-will and the bondage to the world system. And self-will and the world around us are exceedingly powerful adversaries in living the Christian life. And we don't stand a chance on our own. Our only hope is the cross. Freedom from self-will. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and the sin nature and the sin's willful ways, but alive unto God as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice part is dead. The living part is alive unto God. And this new man, we'll see next week, Lord willing, is to be spirit-filled. And so there are some characteristics of a new man in Christ. Some of the characteristics include the fact that he's able to discern things. Remember the natural man? Spiritual things were foolishness to him. 
Neither can he understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned and he doesn't have the spirit. And even the carnal believer cannot understand these things. For the same reason, he's not walking in the spirit. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 2 and verse 15, a wonderful passage, sometimes taken out of context, but he says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. He that is spiritual, a born-again Christian who is walking in the spirit, he's led by the spirit, he's filled with the spirit, he's spiritually minded, and therefore he is able to judge or literally discern all things. He's a different kind of person. And just as the psalmist said in Psalm 143, teach me to do thy will. That's the hard attitude of every spirit-filled believer. He hungers to know God in a deeper way and to know the specifics of God's will. He wants to walk in the very center of God's will, taking the very detailed steps in life that the Lord would have him to take. And this is a learning process. He says, teach me to know your will. And God teaches us more and more over time. We can get more and more tuned into the will of God. As Hosea said, then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. The more we know the Lord and pursue him and follow him, the more we'll know about God and his will. And that's what God wants for us. God is looking for a heart that is teachable. You don't have to be smart to know God's will, but you have to be teachable. It says in Psalm 25 in verse 9, the meek will he teach. It's very plain. That's an easy verse to understand. God will teach the meek. If we're not meek, then God won't teach us. And meekness implies a humble, teachable spirit. As God said through Isaiah, to this man will I look, even to him who is poor, lowly, of a contrite spirit, crushed, and who trembles at my word. Not the proud know-it-all that thinks he knows everything about the Bible and, and he knows God's will for his life. No, it's the one who is crushed, the one who is humble, and the one who trembles before God's word. He's afraid of stepping outside of God's specific will for his life. He fears that. Why? Because his heart desire is to be right in the center of God's will. And he fears displeasing the Lord. You know what Jesus said in John 7? If any man will or desires to do his will, he shall know the doctrine. And there the Lord revealed this truth. If you really want to know God's will, if that's the desire of your heart, if you're willing to do it once God reveals it, then God will reveal it. And why should he do otherwise? I mean, if we're not willing to do whatever it is God wants us to know, why should he tell us? God doesn't want us to, to listen to his will and then sort of sit back and test it out and see if we want to do it or not, see if it meets our approval. You see, God already knows our hearts. If that's what we're thinking, 
If we're just saying, God, show me your will so I can decide whether I want to walk that way or not, then he's not going to show us his will. Our ability to know God's truth, our ability to know God's will is contingent upon our ability or our willingness to do it. And God delights in leading and guiding those who genuinely seek to do his will. That's what he wants for every one of us. He wants us to know his will. He wants us to grow in our relationship to Christ so that we know him better more and more. As Paul said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection so that we can know Christ in such a way that that we develop the mind of Christ and we begin to think like Christ and we begin to look at situations from heaven's vantage point, not from our selfish, uh, physical, earthly vantage point, but we begin to think like God does. That's the kind of person that's in just the right place to hear that still small voice from God. He that has ears to hear will hear what the Spirit has to say. And that's the person that's going to be able to make a God-honoring decision as directed by the Lord because he knows the Lord. He's in tune with God. And his motives are right. And he recognizes that peace that passes understanding. He recognizes that there's no doubt in this decision. God is, there's a peace. There's no anxiety. Peace rules in the heart. And when we are in that place spiritually and morally, and we make a decision in faith, trusting that this is how the Lord led you, trusting in God's sovereignty, That the Lord led you, the Lord opened this door, and that God is moving and leading you to take a step of faith through that doorway. Then God can give us assurance that this is his specific will for our lives. But sometimes we have to make a decision on the spur of the moment, don't we? And all we can do is make the best decision possible for God's glory if we're seeking his will and we have to make it on the spur of the moment, make the best choice that we can with the right heart attitude to honor and please the Lord, not please ourselves. And even if we make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. If our hearts are right and our motives are right, and we really desire to please and honor the Lord, and even if we made a decision that was out of God's will, God is still pleased. Because God is much more concerned about the fact that we had a desire to please him. And if our heart is really to please him and honor him and to do his will, even if we make a mistake, just like Jeremiah said, God can correct us. He can easily put that person back in tune with his will in the next step, before we wander too far astray. And so if our hearts and motives are right, then God is pleased. And that's what it means in Romans 12, to prove the will of God, to try something out, to to see if this is really the, the will of the Lord for you or not. And when we try it out, we take a few steps, and and maybe the Lord wants to redirect our steps, then fine, be willing. And if we take a few steps and we discern that this really is God's will for our lives, then keep going. 
And if we make a mistake, God doesn't want us to panic. No decent father in the world would get angry at his son who genuinely was trying to please his dad but made a mistake. He thought it's what his father wanted. Maybe he was buying him a birthday present, something as silly as it. Well, it's silly, but something as relatively unimportant as compared to eternal things. And he got something for his father that his father didn't really like too much. But his father would be pleased that, that he tried to please his dad. And if the father and the son have that kind of a relationship, then the father can easily make known his will to his son. And if we make a mistake in our relationship to the Lord, and our heart is really in the right place, and we take a step to the right or we take a step to the left and we're out of the center of God's will, if our heart is in that right place, then God can easily redirect us back. And so God's sovereign and providential will can weave together with our individual personal will, and we make a choice, and God can redirect our steps and keep us going in the right direction. God can use providence. God can use open doors. He can use closed doors. God has many tools in his toolbox. And he has many ways to guide us through the wilderness. And I like what Solomon said in, early on in the book of Proverbs in chapter 3 and verse 6. In all thy ways acknowledge him. That's the most important thing. God first. In all thy ways acknowledge him. And then we have a promise. And he shall, that's a promise, direct thy paths. He will. If you acknowledge him. If he's really first if Christ has the preeminence in our lives, if our hearts are wide open to know God's will and to do it. So we don't have to worry about the will of the Lord. It's nothing to panic about. It's something we should rejoice in. It's something we should look forward to with great anticipation for the future. Just walking. That's how It's just walking, one step in front of another. We take a wrong step, God can fix that. Just stay close to him, and he'll direct our steps. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for how profound it is on the one hand, with your providential will working behind the scenes, and our will making decisions in, in time and here in the earth. And Father, we just trust you that you will do as you said, that your Holy Spirit will lead us and that you will direct our steps. Father, help us to rest in that fact and not be anxious about your will, but to rest in it and to walk by faith. And we'll thank and praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.